What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, maybe it's been bothering you for a while, let's get that thing answered. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271. You can always send us an email if you would prefer that. The address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Hey, we got the band back together. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kaminsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. And uh, if you would like to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, uh, Jeff will uh, take care of that for us. Just put that question of yours in the comments box. We're streaming there right now. And then uh, Jeff will see that, and he'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and off we go. We are live. Uh, Thanksgiving, over with. It's in the rearview mirror. We're looking ahead uh, towards um, Advent. We'll be talking about that a little later on. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Fantastic. How was your Thanksgiving break? Oh, it was very nice. Thank you. How about yours? Great. Uh, Wonderful. Uh, Adrienne made a coffee flan. Mm. That was just mm. outrageously tasty. Mm. 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 So that was uh, that was the that was the piece de resistance. I guess so. Am I even close? You're close. So, what did y'all do for uh, Thanksgiving itself? Uh, you know, we had uh, all but one of my kids. I have one child who was who was uh, lodged in another state and okay. unable to come join us. Sure. But, uh, but we had everybody else and and uh, cooked a lot of food, some of which I ate. And, uh, <laughs> Look at you! Yeah, enjoyed one another. Glad to hear that. We're going to lead off today with an email. <laughs> excuse me, an email from Carl. Carl says, "I am a non-religious person. How is religious worship a good thing to do as a means of having a relationship? And why is worship virtuous?" Again, that's from Carl. Yeah, I appreciate the question, Carl. So, first of all, not all worship is virtuous. There is, there is vicious worship. It's possible to worship badly. It's possible to worship wrongly. Uh-huh. It's possible to worship the wrong object. It's possible to worship the right object and in the wrong way. Mm. Right? Uh, but worship as the Catholic Church understands it would be the, the determination to conform my mind and my will and my affections to the highest good, which we understand to be God. And so the dynamic of Christian worship, if done properly, should, should draw one into a participation in all that is good, true, and beautiful, and have a transformative effect upon the personality. And so that is the utility, if you will, of, of worship. It, worship, God doesn't need our worship. God lacks nothing. Uh, worship is for our sake. It's for our, uh, it's our creaturely participation in, in God's goodness. And if we do it properly, we do it in a way that changes us, changes us our character, changes our thinking, changes our habits and our affections so that we become more loving, more just, more rational, more humble, 
uh, and, uh, and and grow in virtue. If it's done in some other way mm-hmm. that doesn't tend to those ends, then it's done badly. Okay, very good. And uh, uh, Carl, thanks for checking in with us here at EWTN's Call to Communion. Mike in Vail has this question. Dr. Anders explained Gregory of Nyssa and Epictasis, a spiritual struggle that perpetually progresses toward deeper union with God. It's a clear concept, but I'm perplexed by the numerous occasions when in the Bible God afflicts his enemies, Pharaoh, with a hardened heart and then pours out wrath and destruction on them. Epictasis requires freedom to choose a path that is aligned with God's will. So if one's heart is hardened by God, progress is impossible. Dr. Anders, can you bring clarity to this apparent injustice? Yeah, sure. So I I think we're kind of comparing apples and oranges here. So the doctrine of epictasis I don't think has any particular bearing on the question of uh, what happened in, in the Exodus when God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Uh, but I will address that question. Uh, so the Catholic position is that God offers sufficient grace to everyone that they might be saved, and that would include Pharaoh. Okay. Right? Um, and uh, the Catholic Church teaches that that all human action, including all human free action, mm-hmm. falls within the scope of divine providence. <clears throat> now, uh, it is above my philosophical pay grade, to tell you how both of those things can be true. How is it possible that God can can grant sufficient grace for everyone to freely cooperate and be saved mm. and for human free choice to fall within the scope of divine providence so that God controls the outcome of human history? I, I, I mean, better philosophers than me have, have, you know, spilled a lot of ink on the question of divine providence and human freedom. So both of those things are affirmed within the Catholic faith. That would be true of Pharaoh as well. Okay. Right. It'd be true of Pharaoh as well. Now, we yeah. can say that that sometimes God, and this is clear from Scripture, God allows our sin to be the punishment for our sin. And I think you can see how that works out in practical effect. So you, you, you see someone who goes down a wrong path. They get involved in activities they shouldn't be involved in. Mm-hmm. Those things can become habitual to them and make it harder and harder for them to extricate themselves from that situation to end up in something virtuous. And then they begin to suffer the consequences of their own evil actions. So sin becomes its own punishment. Okay. Well, very good. And uh, Mike in Vail in Colorado, we hope that is helpful for you. Uh, we're going to go up to break with this one from Nat. Why do you think, Dr. Anders, why do you think Protestantism isn't the true faith? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question for multiple reasons. So first of all, the 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 doctrinal system that is proposed by particular Protestant churches, or I should say the doctrinal systems proposed by different Protestant churches, uh, first of all, are, are historical novelties. So, say, take, for example, the Augsburg Confession of the Lutherans, or the Westminster Confession of the Presbyterians, or you name it, the 39 Articles of the Anglicans. Uh, these systems of belief and, and doctrine don't correspond to what was believed by Christians for the first 1,500 years of the, of the Christian Church anywhere throughout the world. Mm. And so that fact alone really belies the claim that Protestant doctrine can be exegeted straight from the pages of the Bible. Because if that were the case, you would expect someplace, somebody, somewhere would have thought up the contents of the Augsburg Confession, say, before Luther, (laughs) right? You know? Yeah. Um, I, I personally also think that they contradict the plain sense of Scripture, and in many cases, they contradict what reason can tell us about the nature of God and reality. All right, Nat, thanks so much for your question. It is uh, called a communion here on EWTN. We're live right now, so do give us a call. 
It's called a communion here on EWTN. As we mentioned, uh, we're live today. This is the Monday after Thanksgiving, and uh, we would love to hear from you this afternoon at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, 833-288-3986. Not only that, I think you'd have to be uh, a pretty unplugged individual at this point to not have heard that today is Cyber Monday. And that is very exciting for us around here because it's a great day to buy Catholic Shop EWTN's religious catalog at EWTNRC.com. Today, get free shipping on all standard continental U.S. phone and web orders. So don't miss the savings. Today only, EWTNRC.com. I was there earlier today, saw something really nice. Uh, We're going to be attending a wedding a little bit later on this month, and so... uh, I spotted a very cool crucifix with uh, like a wall crucifix. And at the bottom of them are two wedding rings. Beautiful. Very, very nice. And uh, if you're ready now, let's uh, get to those phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with John in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on the great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey, John, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, I just kind of had a question. Um... You know, if someone's going to church and they're doing all the right things, you know, they show up every Sunday, they mm-hmm. pray, you know, maybe they donate a little bit to charity and they, you know, do all that kind of stuff, trying to be a better person and whatnot. Um, does it work against them anyway, as far as like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I guess you can't really, I, I just wonder, I'm just wondering if, if the person has the ability to offer more, do more to reduce the pain and suffering across the world, say like they have, you know, a significant amount of money in their bank account, uh, and they could they could maybe uh, pay their employees five more dollars an hour, and it wouldn't really affect them. Or they could possibly help a small village, you know, uh, maybe build some structures or some wells or something, you know, water wells or something across the world. Uh, you know, if they had the ability to do that, and it wouldn't really affect them financially. Uh, so much. I mean, if, if they just if, if it didn't really affect them at all, really. I mean, and they had the ability to do it, but they chose not to. Uh, would this be a problem, or would it be okay? I mean, like, I mean, I'm assuming it would be okay, right? I mean, it's not like God is going to judge you because you didn't spend money to help people, right? I mean, it's- yeah. Thanks. I think I can speak to that. Thank you so much for the question. So. Uh, there's a passage of sacred scripture that is directly relevant to your question. Um, in in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 3, he says, If I give all that I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship, but I don't have love, then I gain nothing. Mm. Right? And so the the life of heaven communion with god it's not something that can be bought for a price um it's a gift of god that he gives to us in anticipation in this life even uh the the life of grace that flows into our soul through faith in christ is the seed of eternal life begun and grace works in us uh, charity and the virtues and so the sign of our participation in God is the overflowing of charity and the virtues in our life. And it's something we have to cooperate with. It's something we have to cultivate and develop over time. But, but it's essentially the change of one's heart 
regaining the likeness and image of God through this participation in grace that comes through faith and cooperation with, with that grace. Now, in one man, that overflowing charity and virtue might be manifest in extraordinary acts of kindness, like you say, suggesting, you know, building a water well in, in, a, in a third world country that didn't have clean water. Um, for someone else, it might be expressed in, uh, in, uh, in an extraordinary acts of interpersonal empathy. Like, let's say, um, uh, you know, um, attending deeply to the hurt and needs of maybe somebody in your family, maybe a friend of yours, maybe a stranger in your church, right? Um, for someone else, it might be expressed in uh, a desire to, to uh, educate the ignorant, um, uh, somebody else, it might be it might be expressed in extraordinary acts of long suffering. Um, you know, like I think about my own dad who who died of Lou Gehrig's disease, and yet never complained. If you know anything about the disease, you've got a lot to complain oh, about. Yeah, yeah. And he just wanted to be a blessing to the people around him. And so uh, the essential thing is the transformation of one's interior life in charity and the virtues, uh, not so much what the concrete particular material acts are as if, you know, God were nothing but a celestial accountant, you know, with a little, you know, debit and credit book where he was keeping track of good works and weighing them against bad. That's, that's the wrong way to conceive of the spiritual life. Now, people who have a relationship with God overflow in concrete material acts of goodness. I mean, they, they do things like build wells and visit the sick and give to the needy and the poor. They do that, right? But they don't do it because they're trying to buy God's favor. They do it because their hearts have been transformed in charity. And your personality, your temperament, your situation in life, your vocation will largely determine the way you express that charity. Okay. Hey, we thank you so much uh, for your call. That uh, kicks it off for us. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. We do have two lines open, actually, 833 833- 288-3986. Call to communion on this Monday afternoon, <clears throat> excuse me, here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to Tanya now in North Carolina listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Tanya, what's on your mind today? Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Sorry. Yes, go right ahead. Okay, I have you on, on speakerphone. Um, so I'm having a very hard time with my parish because they're they're going... Latin on me. Um, they so for All Saints Day and All Souls Day, um, it was going to be in Latin, the the main most popular mass. <clears throat> so I went. I took my family to the seven a.m. mass for All Saints Day. Um, now for the entire month of December, as far as I can tell. Um, Extraordinary form for the most popular, the evening mass, or, or say like the midnight mass, um, is for Christmas, is going to be a Latin mass. The holy days of obligation are going to be a Latin mass. Um, there is one holy day of obligation or a holy day that they're going to offer for the most popular mass, uh, a Novus Ordo mass, um, but it's going to be in Latin. Um, and for New Year's, it's going to be the most popular mass offered for New Year's, the Holy Day of Obligation, is okay. Latin. Uh, uh, Tanya, do you have a question for Dr. Anders? 
Sorry. What can Dr. Andrews give me? I want to talk to the priest. And I want, like the priest I talked to, the associate pastor yesterday told me that Latin Mass has been around for 2,000 years. He is wrong. That's wrong? He is wrong. And I want to talk to the priest, hopefully not mad like I am right now, but I want to talk to the main priest and try to get him to understand this is not a Latin Mass parish. And the reasons why, and and what what can I say to the priest to hopefully get them back to the Novus Ordo and not the Latin Mass? Because the priest, the associate pastor, told me yesterday. Sure, I, I can speak to that. I think so. Here's here's what I recommend that you do. Um, first of all, in terms of you know, can you persuade the pastor? My guess is is very unlikely, right? That when a, when a pastor has a, a, a pretty set opinion ideologically about the way he thinks the liturgy ought to be celebrated, um, they, they they tend to be rather intransigent about <laughs> that. Uh, the exception would be when their bishop tells them otherwise. Mm. So they're not they're not generally going to change their opinion. I hate to say because of an isolated layperson, maybe I say I suggest isolate. Maybe you're not isolated. Maybe there are a lot of people in your parish that think as you do. My guess is, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, there's probably a significant group of people in the parish that are happy about that decision, and so your dissent will probably be registered as a minority opinion. If I'm wrong about that, that'd be worth knowing. In which case, uh, but if I'm if I'm correct, if there's a significant group that are happy about it, maybe a minority or not, the priest is probably not going def- to defer to the minority if the majority want to go along with him. Um, and, and generally, you know, this kind of movement within the parish is it's not simply an aesthetic choice on the part of the priest. It's genuinely, it sounds like from your discussions, there's a deeply ideological motive here. And if the priest has said that the Latin Mass was around for 2,000 years, well, that's not exactly true. I mean, the first Mass would have been in Aramaic. I mean, Jesus didn't say the Mass in the upper room on Holy Thursday according to the Tridentine formula, right? That's, <laughs> that, that's not false. That's false. Um, so here's something that you might consider. Uh, uh, Pope Francis uh, quite recently, actually, uh, published a motu proprio. That's, a, that's a, 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 a legal document on the Pope's own authority. The title of it is Traditionis Custodis, like tradition, tradition, and then I-S, tradis, Custodis, C-U-S-T-O-D-E-S, that spells out precisely the parameters under which the Latin Mass can be used in parishes, in, in dioceses in the Roman Rite. And um, uh, based on your description, and I, I, I can't make this judgment definitively, but it, it sounds to me like there's a possibility that the priest may actually be in violation of, uh, of, of the law that Pope Francis had laid down. He may not be. I don't know all the details. Um, but uh, hopefully the priest would conform to the law of the Church, so go read the document and, uh, and see if you think that what's going on in your church actually conforms to what church law is on, on when and where and how you can say the Latin Mass. Um, if, it, if it looks like it's in violation of the law, um, then, you know, you could always call the bishop and say, or the bishop's office and say, hey, I'm just, just kind of wondering what we're doing in our diocese about the implementation of traditionis custodis as it respects the Latin Mass in parishes. And the principle basically is this, that dioceses are supposed to make it available for faithful who are devoted to this form of the Mass. They can have an opportunity to go to the Latin Mass, said in the extraordinary form, 
but it's but it's not supposed to be the principal form of most parishes, right? So there are some restrictions on how it can be used. And so, um, but again, uh, if the bishop's aware of what's going on, and the priest has the support of most of the people of the congregation, then then he's probably not going to change because you ask him to. And and uh, and in that case, my recommendation, I hate to say it, would be if you're not comfortable, you know, in the parish under those circumstances, you may have to change parishes, or you may have to learn to put up with it. Tanya, thanks so much for your call. Let's go to Kay in St. Louis, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Kay. What's on your mind today? Um, I was attending a Bible study, and the leader said that uh, Jesus did not know that he was the Son of God until he was baptized in the Jordan and the voice came out of heaven. And I was wondering if that is what current Bible studies scholars are teaching now, or when he knew that he was God? Sure, sure. Thank you. I really appreciate the question. So uh, I want to draw your attention to a distinction. It's an important distinction, and it is the distinction between what Holy Mother Church teaches and what Bible scholars think, (laughs) right? Because the doctrine of the Church is that Christ is fully God, um, and that he is a single person. So he has a divine nature and a human nature, but you're united in a single person. And which means that, you know, that that the person knows who he is. Right? Yeah, the person knows yeah. who he is. So Christ would have had the, 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 the attribute of divine omniscience as a divine person mm-hmm. eternally. Sure. There was never a time when the divine nature of Christ didn't know that the divine nature was divine. And so, you know, Christ in the womb, as a zygote, would have had the attributes of divinity, right? Um, and so this this idea that, you know, Jesus sort of stumbles across the discovery that he's God, that, that's not Christian doctrine. That's not Catholic doctrine at all. Um, and when you ask me, is, is such and such what modern biblical scholars are teaching— um, just about anything you can think up is something that some modern biblical scholar somewhere has taught, <laughs> right? But as Catholics, we're not guided by, in our dogmas, we're not guided by the opinions of fallible Bible scholars, mm-hmm. but by what Holy Mother Church has taught. And according to Mother Church, Jesus always knew that he was divine. Okay, thanks so much, Jeff, for your call from St. Louis. Uh, Laura, or Lara, is watching us on YouTube today. Lara says, uh, hi, I'm wondering about Holy Days of Obligation. I am not yet Catholic, but I feel it. I'm going out of town soon, and that is a Holy Day of Obligation. Am I required to find a Mass service? Yeah, thank you. So uh, by your own admission, you're not Catholic. Right. And so since you're not Catholic, you are not bound by the canon law of the Catholic Church. Uh, However... You feel a strong affinity towards the Catholic, with the Catholic Church, and maybe a desire to become Catholic, and so for you, it may be coming a kind of matter of conscience to worship with the Church and in the Church's way, and so there is certainly no objection. It would be a it would be a pious devotional act for yeah, you yeah. to seek out a mass out of town on the Holy Day of Obligation. But since you are not actually in communion with the Church, you're not receiving the sacraments. Um, you're not under an obligation to, but it would be a it would be a nice thing. 
Okay. Laura, your call. And thank you uh, for your uh, question there via YouTube here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. In a moment, we're going to get back to the phones and we'll talk with James in New York City. Also, Lisa in Cleveland will have some more from Facebook questions, some YouTube questions. Got a couple of great emails cooked up here. Looking forward to uh, the last half of today's Call to Communion. There's still time for you to call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to Communion on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Look like a couple of lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Our Lady of Victory Radio. That is KVIO in Lubbock, Texas. They are celebrating nine years with us. Congratulations to Jonathan Metzger and everybody at KVIO in Lubbock from your friends here at EWTN Radio. Let's go now to James in New York City, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Let's go to uh, James right now. James, what's on your mind today, sir? James on line four. How are you? Great. What's going on, James? Yeah, so my question is, if, if a, a religious item such as a miraculous medal or a um, crucifix has been completely manufactured by AI or has been manufactured in an unethical way, can it still be blessed and be used as a valid sacramental? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I am, I am not aware of any law in the Church that would prevent the blessing of an object that had been produced in immoral means. Now, maybe maybe there there is such a principle, but I'm not aware of it. Um, now, I can definitely think of a circumstance in which a priest might refrain from doing so, yeah. right? Uh, let's take, for example, let's say you've got a rosary, and maybe it was manufactured by, <clears throat> you know, by like forced labor, right, in some foreign country. <clears throat> and um, uh, the priest is ignorant of that fact. Yeah. Right, somebody just hands him a rosary. He says, "Here, Father, you bless this rosary." Well, he's not; he didn't do anything wrong if he blesses the rosary, and the, the blessing is still going to take. It's still going to be good, right? Um, uh, what if the priest had the thought that, well, hey, we're getting like truckloads of these things in here every day, you know, and the the church secretary is putting in orders for you know hundreds of dollars of rosaries from this outfit? I, I don't know that I want to support that. You know, I, I'm going to find a different rosary distributor, mm. and worse. Uh, if uh, you know if this gets out that we've been purchasing these rosaries from this uh, slave labor camp, then that could that could really create a lot of scandal, and I want to avoid scandal. So he could make the prudential decision. I'd rather not use those, you know, because that seems to be that would give the wrong message. Now, there is a principle in Catholic moral theology that also comes into play here, and it's when is it legitimate to cooperate with evil? And you might think, well, you could never cooperate with evil. But the Church says, actually, there's a few occasions when you might. Here's when you can never cooperate with evil. You can never cooperate with evil if your cooperation intends the evil act. Mm. So, like, go back to the rosary example. If you thought, you know, boy, I really like the thought of people, you know, slaving away in forced labor, and every rosary I buy is is another chain, you know, locking them down, right? (laughs) I'm a vicious, malevolent person, and I want to see humans suffer. Well, that would be that would be formal direct cooperation. I'd be attempting to facilitate an evil practice, right? 
You can never do that. You're never allowed to formally cooperate. Uh, then there's something that we call material cooperation. And material cooperation is when you contribute something, some actual matter, that facilitates the evil act. And you can either do that up close and personal, in which case it's called proximate material cooperation, mm -hmm. or kind of at a distance, and then it's called remote material cooperation. Proximate material cooperation is generally not allowable. Think about the abortion doctor who turns to his assistant and says, hand me the scalpel. And the assistant puts the scalpel in his hand, and then he goes to work and commits murder, right? The assistant can't say, well, look, I was just handed him a scalpel. No, that's too close. It's too yeah, close to the action. Yeah. But what if you are a scalpel manufacturer, right? And you're making scalpels not because you intend to see children slaughtered, but because you're trying to make a buck and there are legitimate uses for a scalpel. Well, the fact that your scalpel is used in an immoral procedure is not on you. Your cooperation is now remote. Okay. okay. So I think that in this case, generally speaking, that the cooperation would be material cooperation only and, uh, and extremely remote. And the decision not to bless such an item would be governed more by a prudential concern to not give scandal. James, thank you so much for your call. Call to communion on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN. A couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Charlie is in North Carolina listening on the EWTN app. Hey, Charlie, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Hi, guys. Hi, Dr. Andrews. Um, I, I'm a late, uh, I'm a cradle Catholic, but I came very late to my faith uh, because of an experience I had. And now I've been practicing, oh, about 20 years. Um, I started going to Mass early on every day for a few years, and we moved in the parish that I went to. Couldn't have Mass, but here's my question. How can I, I... I have a desire now to evangelize, if you will, and get the courage to evangelize. How can a Catholic systematically learn their faith? I'm studying the catechism, um, but I'm a man of average intelligence, <laughs> And it's very hard to kind of, I guess, memorize. What's the best way to systematically learn our faith through books and scripture that would ultimately lead me to a point where I can do that? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So, um, you know, you're already doing the one thing that I was going to suggest off the bat, which is to learn the catechism. And, uh, you know, the catechism is not a systematic theology, it's a, it's a kind of compendium of Catholic doctrine that lays forth the, the major ideas, the concepts, the practices that should be presented in the course of catechesis, uh, but there's not necessarily an attempt to draw them together into a kind of coherent order. Um, there, there, there are books that do that. Um, one, I believe the title is In the Light of Christ uh, by Father Thomas Joseph White. Um, is that the title of the book? Um, Light of—no? Well— uh, all right, uh, I'm looking it up right now. Thomas, Joseph, The Light of Christ. That's it, an, in, an introduction to Catholicism uh, that attempts j just such an integration, right? It's a presentation of the main doctrines of Christianity of the Catholic faith, uh, but presented in a kind of coherent narrative. Uh, that, that's a book that I would recommend to you. Um, uh, you know, there are, there are uh, other forms of media that would be very helpful. Quite honestly, uh, we attempt to do that on this show. 
you know, whenever I answer a question about the Catholic faith or its dogmas, its teachings, I don't just give out a yes or no answer. I generally try to set it within a context, talk about its relationship to Scripture and to tradition, magisterial teaching, and its place in the Christian life. And so we try to do that on this show, and, and most of the shows in EWTN that deal explicitly with Christian doctrine are going to be a really good place to go to get that information. Uh, another show on EWTN, Catholic Answers. Um, it's a it's a Q and A show like this one, but the but the the hosts are extremely competent, well versed in Catholic theology and doctrine. They usually give extremely well rounded answers that take account of you know all the historical and biblical data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so stay tuned to EWTN. That's another great resource. Um, uh, so the the important thing I, I get what you're saying about having a hard time memorizing. Um, I remember I really started my theological studies in earnest when I was in college, and I remember thinking. How am I ever going to master this body of material? It's just huge. You know, you could spend a whole lifetime on it. And it's like anything else that you do, you know. I mean, I uh, I remember one time I was talking to my accountant, and he said, or an accountant friend of mine, and he uh-huh. said, man, Anders, I don't know how you answer all these questions about the Catholic faith. And I said, I said, look, how do you answer all your questions about accounting? You know, you, you went to school, you spend your life doing it, you're yeah. immersed in the material. I said, the only difference between you and me is you get paid a lot more per hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean— and uh, and so you just you, this this the more you live in the material, the more second nature it becomes. Now you know I had some advantages when I was in seminary. I took a I took courses in in just basic biblical knowledge, uh-huh. where I was required to commit to memory the contents of every chapter of the New Testament. And um, I don't remember it like I did for the exam, but that served me well. Like I got a pretty good sense of where everything is found in the New Testament. Something similar for the Old Testament. And so I took the time. I just sat down and said, All right, I'm going to make flashcards. I'm going to write it out. I'm going to learn this stuff. I'm going to commit it to memory. You know, and you can, you can certainly do that kind of thing. Uh, but just the more you read, the more you stay in the material in any medium that you can access, whether it's the catechism or a book or a podcast or a YouTube video or EWTN radio, whatever, the more you're immersed in the material, the more second nature it becomes to you. Good luck to you there, Charlie. Thanks so much for your call. Here is Lisa now in Cleveland listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hi, Lisa. What's on your mind today? Hi there. I just was wondering, lately in my church, they've put up banners advertising the movie Journey to Bethlehem, and they're in the sanctuary at the very back on the back wall, but it seems wrong to me that they're advertising a motion picture in the sanctuary of the church, but I don't want to cause a big problem if there's no reason to cause one. So is this something I should talk to our pastor about, or should I just let it go? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I would say that's unusual. Normally, that sort of thing you would you would find it in like the vestibule. You know, you wouldn't find it in the sanctuary as such, or a, or a bulletin board, or yeah, something a like bulletin that. board. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's it's an odd placement. I, I personally don't don't actually know what the there's there are some pretty strict laws in in Catholic canon law about what you can and cannot do within the sacred space of the sanctuary. I don't know if that is in violation of one of those principles or not. I'd have to do some research to find out. Um, But it is unusual to place it actually within the sanctuary. And so, I mean, it wouldn't hurt to say to the pastor, hey, you know, just kind of wondering, maybe this is a really good movie, and maybe we should all go see it, but 
what what tell me what your thoughts are on having the poster in the sanctuary versus out of the sanctuary mm, and just right. see what he has to say hey lisa great question uh, and great call thank you so much for it from cleveland call to communion here on ewtn last call for your call at 833-288-ewtn that's 833-288-3986 be sure to join us for catholic connection with Teresa Tamio, that's coming up tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern here on EWTN. Uh, she is joined tomorrow by Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse from the Ruth Institute. Interesting topic, should conversion therapy be banned all over the world? Check out the uh, great program, Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio, tomorrow morning right here on EWTN Radio. That's at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. By the way, um, Dr. Jennifer Roback Morris has just launched a podcast on EWTN's Podcast Central, and it's called The Dr. J Show. It has nothing to do with basketball. You may want to check that out on EWTN's Podcast Central. All right, calls coming in right now at 833 833- 288-EWTN. Meanwhile, this email from Chandler, do Catholics believe in the double procession of the Holy Spirit? All day and literally twice on Sundays. (laughs) Good. (laughs) We believe the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, to be sure. Filio Quae. Okay, there it is. And uh, this one from Beth. How do Catholics understand Noah's flood as a real event or as a myth? Yes, Oh, I see what you did there. Yes, yes. Well, really, it kind of depends on which Catholics you ask, right? Because uh-huh. this isn't the kind of thing for which the Church routinely proclaims a dogma. Uh-huh. You know, there are, there are things that all Catholics have to believe. You have to believe the existence of God and the Blessed Trinity and the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection, Christ founding the Church, the sacraments, the life of grace. These are things all Catholics are bound to believe. Um, uh, another thing that all Catholics believe is that the whole, that the Old Testament is to be read in multiple senses, right? That there is a literal sense to the text, but there's also a moral sense to the text. There's an allegorical sense to the text. There's what we call an anagogical sense to the text. And that the most important way to read the Old Testament is with an eye to the so-called spiritual senses, the moral, anagogical, and allegorical. Um, these are This is a reading of the Bible that connects us to the person of Jesus that that is oriented to reframing our moral lives uh, and to pointing us to the life of heaven. And so while those senses of the text are grounded in the literal, uh, they transcend it uh, in, uh, in importance. And the literal sense of the Old Testament, we don't take the word literal literally. We don't take the word literal the way a fundamentalist would take it. Mm, okay. Fundamentalists usually think of literal meaning... Whatever, whatever denotative sense the proposition that I pull randomly out of the Bible has, that that is the, that is the sense in which I must take it and none other, right? And, and that's not what we mean by literal. Literal means what did the sacred author mean to convey? What was the purpose of the text when it was written in its historical context? And applying that rule to all of those rules to the interpretation of Noah's Ark, the flood story, one of the things we note right off the bat is the New Testament reads Noah's Ark as an allegory for Christian baptism. Oh. It says it explicitly. First Peter chapter 3 says that Noah's Ark represents baptism, not the washing of uh, dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Now, if you in the Noah's Ark story, what happened? There were wicked men that God washed away from the face of the earth. In baptism, uh, the stain of original sin and actual sin is washed away from the soul. Mm-hmm. And so the New Testament sees the Noah's story as an allegory for that moral purification that we all have to go through to enter the life of heaven. All right. That's, that is the spiritual sense of the text. 
that's the most important one. Um, and at, at the literal level, um, was the purpose of the sacred author to give us a lesson in geology, flood geology? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not, right? And so there's nothing about the text as it stands that requires the Catholic to believe in a literal worldwide flood 10,000 years ago. Even though that's how most fundamentalists read it, there's nothing about the Catholic faith that constrains me to that interpretation. Now, there are some Catholics, historically and probably contemporaneously, who read the text that way. I am not one of them, right? And the reason that I don't read the text that way is that, first of all, I don't think the text itself demands it. And second of all, it flies against everything that I think I know about natural science and mm -hmm. natural history. Mm. And another dogma of the Catholic faith is that anything that I assert in the faith should be reconcilable with reason and vice versa. And so, uh, you know, if I, if I hold something in faith that conflicts with what reason tells me, then I'm making a mistake someplace in my theology, right? And the, and the easiest way to reconcile what faith and reason can teach about Noah's flood is as to, seem, to go where the evidence seems to lead, which is that we're not talking about a historic worldwide flood that took place 10,000 years ago. Okay, Beth, thank you so much uh, for your email. Let's go back to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Luke is a first-time caller in Kerrville, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Hello, Luke. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Um, I was wondering, uh, I was at a teaching mass uh, recently on Sunday, and the priest said that the pulpit was like a second altar, and he called it the altar of the word. I was just wondering, what's the church's take on that, and um, what they believe? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Uh, I, I would think that the priest is using the word altar in an analogous way. He's not using it in a in a um, uh, in a univocal way, mm. right? So the word means something slightly different in each case. An altar is a place of sacrifice. And the preeminent sacrifice in the Mass is the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood that takes place through transubstantiation when the Holy Eucharist is consecrated. And that is fundamentally different from what happens at the ambo or the pulpit when the priest preaches. Right? So when, we, when the priest gives the homily, we do not believe that in that act of giving the homily that the body and blood of Christ are being offered to God the Father in, rec in reparation for the sins of the world. That's something that happens uniquely in the Eucharistic sacrifice. Mm, yeah. okay? um, and yet, and yet it, it doesn't bother me that the priest would use this language, because it seems to me he's using it in a metaphorical, in an, in an analogous way, simply that you know, the, the whole Mass, from, from, the, from the introit to the recessional, is a single act of sacrifice. Now that, and that is church teaching. Like the sacrifice is preeminently expressed in the consecration of the Eucharist, but the entire rite from start to finish is the one Eucharistic sacrificial liturgy, of which the homily is an essential part. Okay. And so, like when I go to Mass, I offer myself along with the body of Christ as an act of worship to God. That's part of the sacrificial action. The essential act is the transubstantiation. But my willing self-offering is, is a necessary concomitant. It accompanies that, and, and my participation requires my own sacrificial self-offering. In the same way, the priest makes an offering, and I use that word again in kind of an analogous yeah, way, yeah. of himself in the homily, um, and, and, the, and the whole 
ritual of reading the scriptures and proclaiming the homily is uh, is understood by the church to be uh, one half of a covenantal renewal ceremony. So the, the, the priest declares the word of God and the congregation responds by saying, yes, we'll do that. You know, there's a kind of call and response aspect right. to it, you know, right. and it's it's all integral to what will take place on the altar of sacrifice for the Eucharist. And so I'm not I'm not troubled by the priest's, priest's use of this language, although it's somewhat inexact, especially for a teaching mass, which is sure what this is. Have you ever, have you ever been to a teaching mass? I'm trying to think I ever have been to a teaching mass. Um, you know, I, I remember uh, Bishop Foley here in uh, Alabama of, of happy memory. May he rest in peace. I remember a, a, attending a teaching mass where he walked in carrying all of his vestments. And he said, okay, this is a stole. This is, you know, and, and he went through everything that he was wearing and basically got dressed right there. It was really interesting, very, very informative. Luke, thanks so much uh, for your call today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Olivia is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Olivia says, is divorce a sin for a Catholic couple. And what about separation? Is that a sin? Okay, thanks. It depends. It depends, all right? It, there are situations in which a divorce might be a sin for one party in the marriage and mm. not the other, mm. right? Okay. Um, there are situations in which it might not be a divorce for, it might not be a sin for either, and there's situations in which it might be a sin for both. All right, so let me explain. Under normal circumstances, we, we, we may take promises of marriage. We promise to maintain conjugal living together under one roof, mm-hmm. um, you know, to have and to hold, to love and to honor and cherish the sickness and in health, rich, poor, better, for worse, all the rest of it, until death do us part. So one cannot cavalierly, cavalierly cast aside the promises of marriage. If, for example, a man comes home and, uh, and says to his wife, you know, um, you bore me. I don't love you anymore. I've found a younger model. Um, I'm out of here. See you. You'll hear from my lawyer. Clearly, that act would constitute a grave sin. Grave sin. Uh, now, the wife at that point has a choice. Um, I know the kind of guy this fellow is. He may take me to the cleaners and the kids, too. Um, I've got to protect myself because mm-hmm. I think he'll do what he says. If she goes out and hires a lawyer and, and, and seeks, to, you know, seeks legal protection from the courts for the abuse this guy is getting ready to heap on her, she has not sinned. The sin is on the husband, all right? Um, So that'd be a sin. Um, Let's say um, that um, uh, uh, her husband, instead of, you know, through an act of malice, let's say he has a a kind of late-onset psychosis that comes across him, and he becomes criminally insane, and so that he's a danger to himself and other people, but it's through no fault of his own. Like, he's not personally responsible for this. This is a horrible disease and affliction that's come upon him, right? And, uh, and she has to seek protection from him because otherwise her life is in danger. Mm. Well, then it would be no sin on her part, nor would it be sin on his part. Yeah. Right? Um, here's a third situation. Let's say uh, that uh, they look in and they both cu- couple walks in, they look at each other and they say, you know, we're tired and bored with this situation. And so we're just going to call it quits and go find something else to do. Well, then I'd say they have both in sin. Okay. And we appreciate that. Uh, Thanks so much uh, for checking in with us today, Olivia, on YouTube. I think we have time for one, maybe two more calls. Mike, a first-time caller from Indianapolis watching on YouTube. Mike, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. Andrews, uh, 
In Acts chapter 5, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but... Um, it says, That's my job. Put me on the spot. All right, I'm putting you on the spot. And you got, uh, I'm just trying to tie it up with, this is after Jesus' resurrection, I'm assuming either maybe Pentecost, but it's in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, yep. the couple. So they have, uh, you know, they died right at the scene after, you know, they, they, were, they, they, they sold their property, they didn't come clean in terms of the the purchase, and you have not. And yet now that they lied to the human beings, but to God, that's what Peter told them. He says, "When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died." Same thing happened to his wife. They confronted her. Blah blah blah. And uh, I'm just saying that uh, what happened at the cross. I mean, Christ died for them. They didn't get a second chance. Um, their punishment or is this a hyperbole sort of type of story? Yeah, I appreciate the question. Sure. So, so the Catholic doctrine of repentance and forgiveness um, does not imply that Christians get a free pass with respect to future sins, right? So, the, you know, the, the death of Christ does not absolve us automatically from all future sinning. The death of Christ uh, wins for us the grace whereby when we come in repentance to God in the Church— we can, in fact, be be absolved, um, but without repentance, uh, whether your sin is before or after the incarnation, um, you uh, there are consequences. There are consequences, um, even when we repent of our sin and even when we receive forgiveness. There can still be temporal consequences that might include physical death. Mm. So let me give you an example. Let's say a man, uh, you know, runs away on his wife and goes and has immoral sexual relations with somebody he doesn't know. He's committed the sin of adultery and fornication. Um, he repents. He's sorry. He, God forgives him. Maybe his wife forgives him. Maybe the whole church forgives him, and he's reconciled. But then he finds out that in that act of immorality, he has picked up a terminal disease. Oh. It's a result of his immoral behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, he's repented. He's forgiven doesn't mean he's not going to die of the disease he picked up. There's sure. still consequences. All right. Mike, uh, thank you so much. I'm glad we could get to your question today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Looking forward to our next visit. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be back with you today. Monday through Friday is how we do this program at 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast and 11 p.m. for the Encore. That's 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast. Charles will have that posted for you ASAP. Just go to EWTN.com slash radio. Look for the word podcast. EWTN.com slash radio. Look for podcast. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Look forward to talking with you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a wonderful day. God bless. <laughs>